Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to start by saying there's a mention of Father's Day in one of these slides. I was just looking around at all the dads. I, I recently became a dad a year and a half ago. I realized I wore tube socks today, but they're only up a little bit. And I think as I, the longer I become a dad, the tube socks are just going to get higher. Um, so I don't know why I was thinking that, but uh, I just thought I'd share that to start. Um, we're in, Psalm two, uh, we're in Psalm 8 this morning, so please open your Bibles to Psalm 8. Um, and as you're opening that, I would like to remind you uh, why we're called Scale the Mountain. Scale stands for story. There is a grand story played out in the whole Bible, and you see themes uh, in the Psalms, a story in the Psalms, and um, the Psalms take place in this grand story of redemption that God is telling. The C stands for Christ, and every psalm is about Christ, not just the ones that point to a direct thing that happened in his ministry on earth. And I will say, if you miss Christ in the psalms, you miss the whole point. A stands for affections. This means things like emotions, your heart, your desires, your heart postures, your beliefs, and your will. They're all kind of wrapped up into this word, affections. And the psalms stir our affections to worship the Lord more. L stands for love. The Psalms teach us to love God, love neighbor, and love God's law. Um, and in doing so, in loving God's law, we love God and, his, and, and our neighbors better. And E stands for exaltation. Every single psalm is a prayer. And the goal of the psalm is to get us to worship through prayer, praise, and petition. Story, Christ, affections, love, exaltation. That's why we have scale in the title. So I just wanted to remind you of that. You can use that to help you interpret any psalm you approach in your own personal reading. Um, now that you guys are at Psalm 8, let's read. I actually forgot to turn while I was talking, so that's what I'm going to do right now. <clears throat> o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Well, Father, your name is majestic in all the earth. The whole thing, all the nations get to experience a little bit of your majesty. And as we are reflecting on missions, um, but also the sorrows of our present circumstances in this world, would you remind us that your name is majestic and you are the one we worship in the midst of all the troubles, in the midst of all the hard things. You are glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin today by returning back to the S in our acronym, STORY. Psalm 8 is an intentional retelling of the creation story, but it highlights specifically the place of man in the creational order. Genesis 1-1, all the way on the first page of the Bible, starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are the famous first words of the Bible, and after this, God created light, 
in the darkness, in the skies, in the seas, in the land. And he said, it's good. Then he created the moon and the, the stars and the birds and the fish and all the animals. And he said, it was good. But it was not until mankind was created, Adam and Eve, that it was very good. It's very good is what he said. And then he uses specific language to describe the role God's people would play in the creational order. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is in Genesis 1, 26. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, the superscript of Psalm 8 says this is a Psalm of David. That just means that David wrote this Psalm. But the question is, why would David need to remind God's people about creation? That seems like something that happened a long time ago. It's abstract and it's far away, right? Why does it matter? But I want you guys to remember the A and the L in our acronym, affections and loves. These psalms are trying to stir up in God's people affections and loves that get them to do things, to get them to serve the Lord and worship him in prayer. They need to internalize that being made in the image of God, they are loved and cared for above the rest of creation so that they live out their purpose in the world. As Israel was establishing their nation, it would have been so easy. And, and I think we can relate to this because it's so easy for us today to just fall into the temptations inside of our hearts and give in to the idols of the nations around their hearts and believe those things. David recognized that they needed constant reminders to remind themselves who they were and who created them. So that is why this question is at the very center of the psalm. If you look, go both ways in, right in the middle. What is man? What is man? This is the question. And this doesn't mean specifically men and therefore ignoring women. It just means mankind, right? Men and women included. The question is asking what is the purpose of man and woman as well? Now, With the question in mind, what is man, that you are mindful of him, there are going to be three things that we're going to be talking about during the rest of this sermon. This is the direction we're going. Three things. One, mankind are created worshipers. Number two, mankind is cared for by God. And number three, mankind is God's cosmic royal stewards. Three things, created worshipers, cared for by God, and cosmic royal stewards. And along the way, we're going to look at some of the ways the world and Satan lie to us to get us to believe other things than these three things that the psalm tells us about. Finally, we're going to see how the psalm points to Christ. Number one, we are created worshipers. In the Bible, creation and worship go together, right? Verse one of the psalm says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you see how In God's created earth, his name is famous. That's worship and creation together. The whole of creation is filled with the majesty of God's glory. All of it, every single corner of the earth, there's not 
one place that's God-forsaken. He has not left a, a single place of the earth where we can't see pieces of his, created gen- his creative genius. And I think there's a specific way creation points to this. Genesis 1.28, which we just read, says, Be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. This is God's command to his people. We are told to populate the earth. This seems like an interesting call, but there's a reason for it. I want you guys to look left and right. Look to your left. Look to your right. Okay? That's the reason. We are image bearers. The person you just looked at is an image bearer of the Lord. And so when we fill the earth, when God's people fill the earth, they are filling the earth with God's image. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation bear God's stamp on them. It is the most glorious thing besides maybe the sacraments that we take to see your neighbor. It's the, cl- the closest thing we'll ever see in this life to God. And that includes your neighbors who really annoy you. Um, and includes your neighbors who you get along with really well. Every single person is an image bearer. God told mankind to be fruitful and multiply because he wanted to fill the earth with image bearers. That's a pretty amazing thing. Remember, this is the E in in scale, S-C-A-L-E, exaltation. When we see other people who are God's precious creation, the crown of, of God's creation, we ought to worship God. However, we don't do that. That is often not our default. We instead sin against our neighbor and against God. That's our default mode. Ultimately, this is an issue of worship, right? When we're sinning, we're not worshiping God. It's as simple as that. You can't do both things at the same time. But at the same time, we are created to worship. Remember, creation and worship go right together since the beginning. And so, inevitably, we end up worshiping other things. Tim Keller defined worship this way, whatever you value or love the most, whatever is your greatest source of significance and security, you are worshiping in your heart. And in our world, in the Western United States, different places have different worship struggles, but at the heart of it, it's all a worship struggle. Uh, We are told two lies that are opposite of the reality that the Bible tells us. And those lies are, we are not created, and we are not worshipers. Those are the two lies. It's the, it's the opposite of that. that. This has nothing to do with you know, evolution versus creationism and all those things, that, those cultural battles that sometimes get fought in the church. But if those are a big deal to you, I'd love to talk to you more about those. But that's not the point. The point is we're created. We are created worshipers. The question is more about who's the source of where we come from. Who created us? And we are told all over our culture, all over our world, that nothing defines us. Nothing creates us. We are just, you know, maybe a product of complete randomness and material process. You know, maybe the love of your parents is what brought you here. Maybe Maybe that at the most. Certainly not some heavenly God who created you, right? That's not even thought of often in our culture. Um, And in the wake of this, we are told we have to discover what is our meaning and purpose. It's a a place of self-discovery. If I could borrow Keller's words, uh, we 
have to make something our greatest source of significance and security to give us definition and meaning for who we are. All people do. Um, and if I could quote Bridget for a moment, um, she, she is very wise, and when we were on staff with crew, um, she would tell us when in evangelism training, she would tell us often uh, when we're asking people questions about the Lord, and they're like, yeah, I'm finding my own way right now, she would just ask them, how's that going? It's a great question. No, it's an awesome question, because we just don't self-reflect very much, and so... Uh, Maybe if you're watching online or you're in this room and you are trying to make your own way and trying to find your own meaning and purpose apart from the Lord, I want to ask you, how's it going? How's it going? Um, I think even Christians, we fall into this all the time. We make something else an idol and we just go our own way and we don't self-reflect and think, how's it going? Am I finding meaning and purpose in this? Does this thing, the promises that I put on this thing, are they satisfying me the way I think they are? It's a really wonderful question, and I think about it all the time, so props to Bridget for that. Um, How's it working out? Um, I want to say the Lord offers you something better. You are a worshiper. You are created to be known by the God of the universe to worship him in all you do. That is a much better and a much more glorious thing, right? We are created to worship the God of the universe who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. That's the God we worship. And even when we don't feel the meaning and purpose, he still gives it to us, even when we don't feel it. When our, our affections don't line up with reality, right? This is why we need the Psalms, to line up our affections and our hearts with reality. God has given us purpose, and he loves us. And this leads into my second point, right? We are created worshipers, but it's not like God created us in some desire to have someone to feed his ego, right? God's not like that. He created us to worship us out of his love, out of an abundance of love. He cares for us really deeply. This is our second point. He cares for you. He cares for us. He cares for City Hope. He cares for his creation and his people and people above all the rest of creation, David looks at creation, and he wonders, what is man? He looks at the heavens, and he describes it as the works of God's fingers. Uh, Ashlyn has been crocheting recently. That's what I'm imagining. She's crocheting. It's just like one little line of of string. Um, That's how delicate the Lord is with the heavens. We can't even fathom how big they are. But he says, what is creation, excuse me, what is man that you are mindful of him? Son of man, that you care for him. What affections are being stirred up in your hearts right now? Wonder? Amazement? The God of the universe who created all things, he thinks about you. He cares for us. He cares for you. And, by the way, only with the Christian conception of who God is can this be true. Only with a Christian conception, because on the one hand, we believe God is all-knowing. He knows all things, and so he knows every little part of our lives. And at the same time, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's all-loving. And so he can do both those things at the same time for every person in the world. You are not left out. It is bigger than we can ever imagine. But I think one of Satan's most powerful tools against God's people is to convince us that God doesn't actually care about us. He doesn't actually love us. That's what Satan says. But remember, Psalm 8, remember the creational 
story-driven context of this verse. In the creation story, God tells us that when he created man and woman, that made creation very good. You are the very good part of creation. You are more special than the heavens, the stars, and the moon. You bear God's image in the heavens. Do not. You are special. Don't think for a moment God doesn't care about you. That's why the gospel makes so much sense, because he loves us. God spared his judgment through the work of Christ's life and death and resurrection because he loves us. His love is so amazing. You think of all the messages that get bombarded towards us all the time. Maybe you feel them right now. Maybe you are feeling unloved. You are being told you're unloved. You have no importance. Your voice doesn't matter. Nobody wants to hear from you. Nobody cares about your problems. Maybe you're being told you're alone through whatever the circumstances in your life are. I think when we rest in these words, uh, I don't want to... I wrote all the messages fall away, but I think the messages still can be there sometimes. But the greater story resounds louder in our ears the more we rest in the words that the Lord cares for us. Think of the opening words of this psalm. O Lord, our Lord. When you see the lowercase caps of Lord, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's God's covenant name for himself. And that is the Lord who is our Lord. God, in covenant with his people, cares for us, and we can call him ours. That's pretty amazing. And we forget that all the time. But he thinks about us. He cares for us, even though we screw up all the time. <laughs> all the time. We mess up. And we sin, and we, we are like the nations that just rage and plot in vain against the Lord all the time. So, we've talked about how we are created worshipers, how we're cared for, This leads us into the third and final point, that we are God's cosmic royal stewards. I'm going to say that one more time. I'm going to break down each word. Cosmic meaning just the world around us, the cosmos. Cosmic, we're royal, like royalty, we're stewards. We've been given something to care for. It's out of that love that he made you, that he made you a cosmic royal steward, right? This is the answer to the question, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? God cares for you so much, he gave you a really important job. I think uh, when children are, are bored and want something to do, it makes them feel really good to give them something to do. Say, this is your job. This is how you're helping mommy or daddy. And just like our father knows, we need a purpose as well. We need a purpose. And the response to the question, what is man that you are mindful of him, verses five through six say this, You have made him, what? A little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Right? Crowned. It's a royal title. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. God cares about us to the point that he gave us a very important and special job. That all dominion in creation was given to people. I think we can see this around us. You know, we make cars and, you know, rockets that even go to space. Um, the metaphor of, of under his feet in verse 6, it's an ancient Near Eastern way of saying authority and rule. It's like kingly language. It's a term for rulers. God has made you and me and every person just a little lower than the heavenly beings to rule the whole cosmos. And I think we should think about the implications of this for a moment. 
how often do we treat the world around us as if, as if it's just stuff to be thrown away or, or wasteful? Yeah, I think that can even extend to other people, too. We treat God's most prized possession like something to be dominated. Um, every person has royal status in God's eyes. It's not just the powerful and the rich that enjoy God's favor, but also the poor and the meek. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit what? The earth. They get the earth. That is a promise that begins all the way in Genesis. God's meek stewards get the earth. And if you are royalty and I am royalty, that means our neighbor is also royalty. Even the neighbor who annoys us, even the neighbor who we disagree with, even the neighbor who hurts us physically or hurts our feelings, even those neighbors deserve our love and respect. And even when they don't deserve it, we are told to love them anyway, as Christ loved us. That is a hard, hard responsibility. But it's, it's worth it because they're royalty. And we want to usher them into God's kingdom as fellow royal stewards with us. And we want to be good stewards of what God has given us and the people God has put in our lives as well. It also means that you individually have been given some sort of responsibility, some bigger than others, but we also need to remember that God is the highest authority. He is the ruler of the cosmos, and we are sub-rulers. We're stewards. We're not meant to kick against what God tells us to do, but to submit to his law. This is why the L in love, part of that is love the law, because that's how we steward God's creation. Notice in Psalm 2, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, last week, uh, the kings of the earth don't do this. They set themselves against God, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. A good and godly ruler humbles his or herself to God and submits to his rule. This is, this is hard. This is hard. If we are royalty, that means we have a kingdom that God has given to us, uh, and we should do so. We should rule over that kingdom wisely. But I think in the American West, that is not how we believe our rules are in the earth. In the American West, we primarily see ourselves as business people, like a businessman or a businesswoman, not a king, but the goal of a, the best, I, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, slandering people who own businesses. There's, there's a certain ideal of what a business owner does. We're told the goal is to maximize profit, to be as efficient as possible, to get it the most as possible out of creation. What do people say in our culture all the time? I just want to get the most out of life. Have you guys heard that? I'm trying to get the most out of life. So we stretch our time thin and, and we do as much as we can. We never rest so we can, we can get money. When we are business people, efficiency becomes the highest priority we do everything we can to, get us, to, to squeeze our kingdom of all their resources to get as much profit as we can so we can expand the bounds and build bigger barns and increase our business empire. Believe it or not, I have a business degree from Ball State. Believe it or not, I was a horrible student. I don't know how that happened. Um, uh, just ask any of the guys in my Bible study. They'd be like, oh, yeah, he skipped class all the time. Um, I hope my parents don't listen to this. Um, so, no, they know. They know I skipped class. I, I have a really distinct memory of one of my professors who was a CEO of multiple companies. Um, he said this, the goal of your business is to make as much profit as you can. And then he emphasized this, that's not selfishness. 
You're just trying to make the most out of what you've got. That's what he said. Uh, that quote has stuck in my mind because I think trying to get the most for myself is what selfishness is. That's the definition. But we convince ourselves that that's what we're supposed to do because, you know, we misuse God's stewarding privileges that he's given us. It's a privilege. And the result of this thinking is that even other people become a means to an end to our business empire. And if they aren't acting like we want, then they are just sunk costs. Even people. Uh, I think at the height of this mindset, if you think of all the horrors of history, we end up doing really serious harm to our neighbors, right? People, people who are, you know, we're people, they're people. Part of the sin of things like slavery and dictatorships is that people are either sunk costs or an opportunity for me, to be explo- for me to exploit to maximize my profit, right? At the height of this, the other royalty in God's creation just become a means to an end. I want you guys to notice this is a corruption of God's gift to us. We're to be royal, wise stewards who love our neighbors, care for creation. But in this mindset, the world is not enough dominion for us. We also subject our neighbors under my individual feet to harm. Uh, Serena shared last week about her family's escape from the Cambodian, uh, the Cambodian genocide. And uh, the dictator at that time was Paul Pot. And he said in an interview later on, I want you to know, everything I did, all those horrible things, is for my country. That's what he said. It's for my country. And I think this is the view that all people take to justify misusing their royal standard that God has given them, right? We're all kings, we're all queens, but we justify this by inserting our idol there, right? If you take away the my country part of what he said, all people do this, right? It's the same heart. Uh, One pop star, she said this to justify her divorce. I was just going through the motions and I wasn't happy. Neither of us did anything wrong, neither of us hurt each other or anything like that. It's just, I want my son to see me really love and to be loved. It's really important to me. In other words, my justification for my sin, I did it for my son. I love my son. I did it for him. Uh, We read a book in one of our spiritual formation classes about ministry in seminary um, and how a big temptation, specifically for men in ministry, is that uh, they would functionally abandon their families and justify it by saying, I did all this for my ministry. It's all for God. Ministry becomes an idol, and even something as vital to the church as vocational ministry can easily become something we use to justify all sorts of ungodly things. How many times can we fill in the blank there with things that are our idols, how we misuse what God has given us to steward the world? Oh, I did it all to make my country great. I made all these sacrifices. It's for my future, for my family's future. I did it all for my job. We're doing really good work over there. Oh, I did it all for love. I just love this person, so I'm going to do all these things. Chasing my dreams. It's for my dreams. The American dream. Nobody can stop me. But this way of thinking is a corruption of what the Lord made us to be like. We're to be stewards, royal cosmic stewards. Our lives, they don't belong to us primarily right? God is the final Lord of even our own lives. Everything we have is given to us, and God is in control, right? In verses 5 and 6, what does it say? You, Lord, have given man dominion 
over all things. And you have put all things under his feet. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. All our positions in life, all the things small and great that we've been given to steward and care for, God has given us. He owns everything. A later psalm says he owns the cattle on a thousand foothills. And I'm sure the, the owners of those cattle on those foothills thought they owned those cattle, right? Remember, God cares for us, and we try to hold on to our kingdom like it only belongs to us. But it's actually better that we don't take that mindset, that it's God's first, because that's the way he created us to be. He didn't create us to, to, to constantly be at odds with each other and, and try to expand our kingdoms, and when our boundaries butt up against each other, we go to war. That's not how we're created to be. No, we have been created worshipers, deeply cared for by God and given an important task. And at this point, I've probably made you very uncomfortable because I am, after all, comparing the common motivations of you and me to that of a really horrible person (laughs) who's done unthinkable things. I'm not saying that if you were in the same situation as a dictator, you would do the same thing but you would probably just do bigger versions of what you already do on your day-to-day. What I'm trying to show you is that we all have sinner's flesh. We have the same sinner's heart that we've inherited from the first royal steward, Adam. He was the first one, and he literally royally messed up. Literally. Ever since him, for thousands of years, we've been sinning and misusing our dominion in the world. That's in our sin, in our flesh, that's what we do. And yet, David still writes this to sinful people, right? The, the stewardship hasn't changed. The cared-forness of God's people hasn't changed. Our worshiping mindset hasn't changed, which is why we need Christ, right? We all have that sinful flesh. And when we read Psalm 8 in a vacuum, it can seem kind of like this thing that happened at one point in time, but it's actually a prophecy about who Jesus is. That's the way the New Testament interprets this. We're going to look at three quotations. Um, there are four in the New Testament, one's in Ephesians, but uh, I think three fits our st- structure well of three different points. The first one's in Matthew 21, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21, we're going to begin in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Now you may notice the, word or the words are a little different. That's just because he's quoting from the Greek translation of the Psalms. Um, but what Jesus is saying is that he is the fulfillment of this Psalm in the fact that he is the one who deserves the worship and the praise. And this is in the context of him entering Jerusalem and cleansing the temple, right? He's essentially walking into the temple and saying, hey, this is mine. I get to do with it what I want because he's Lord. He's God, right? Point one, we're created worshipers. He's the God that we worship. That's what the New Testament says. The God of the universe walked into the temple. Second quotation is in Hebrews chapter two. Beginning in verse five, it reads, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's the psalm. 
keeps going. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Remember, Jesus is fully man, truly man, and truly God. He has two natures. He is it's a mysterious union, but in his work, we actually, in our hearts, see him with the eyes of our hearts crowned with glory and honor. What Hebrew says is because of his suffering and death, being fully man, he tasted death for all, and being fully God, he overcame the grave. The author of Hebrews connects this psalm to his gospel work on the cross in his life, death, and resurrection. Third quote, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That Paul is writing a mouthful there, for sure. Um, to summarize a little bit of what he's teaching from this psalm, he's saying, this is a psalm about creation. It's pointing to mankind and its original design. Christ is the true and second Adam who... When Adam sinned, you know, he submitted himself to death, right? We're supposed to have all things in subjection under our feet, but Adam let death come over him. It was the punishment for him sinning against God in the garden. In misusing the dominion God has given for them, Adam and Eve were dominated by death, right? That's, that's what happened when they ate the fruit, and God told them that would happen. It's not like it, it came out of left field. So, all things in Psalm 8, if we were to apply it today, seems far-fetched. We live in a world surrounded by death. And even though everything is supposed to be under the feet of man, death seems to always win. People always die. All of us are going to die someday. Every single one of you, and me as well. Uh, And the Lord knows the time. We don't know the time. We can do our best to prolong the day, but it will come. It seems like that's never going to end. But Christ is the second Adam. And Christ is also God, so he can't sin. And he's Lord over everything. And so death has been put under Christ's feet. And he has had victory even over the grave. He's died even for us to restore all of creation as it ought to be. So my final question is, what do those three New Testament quotes have to do with anything in Psalm 8 that we've been talking about? I want to tell you they have everything to do with Psalm 8. Point one, we are created to worship. We are created worshipers. 
Jesus is our creator, and he is the object of our worship. And in going into the temple and letting the children worship him, he was effectively saying, I'm coming to bring the worshipers home. That's point one. He is God, the one we were created to worship, right? Point two, what is point two? We are cared for by God. Jesus cared enough to subdue under his feet what we could never do, death itself. By taking that death upon himself and declaring victory over the grave. That's what Christ did for us. And so, it shows just how much he cares, how much he loves, how much he loves you and me. The gospel is his gift to God's people. You are cared for more than you could ever know. You don't deserve the gospel. We have squandered our, our privileges, but God restores those in Christ. And point three, we are God's royal stewards. We live today in an already and not yet tension, right? Christ has already won the new heavens and the new earth and has declared that they are coming, yet we're not there yet. And so, we're, we're both renewed and our, our relationship with God has been restored, but the whole earth, I mean, it said in the scriptures earlier, it hasn't been subdued under the feet of mankind yet. But what we do see now, because of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth are breaking in today, right now, as we speak through us, through churches all around the world today, not just City Hope, right? We're just one tiny piece. I was thinking as we were praying earlier, it's like, there's like 30 people in this room. There are millions of Christians around the world. What, what are the prayers of 30 people to steward? We're, we're asking God to uh, expand his kingdom, to send out missionaries. What, is the, what impact does that make in the world? is God who gives the dominion. He is worthy of our praise, and He is strong enough to save souls from the ends of the earth. It has everything to do. We can't be God's royal stewards without God. And He has declared the God we worship, the God who cares for us, and the God who has given us dominion, He declared He's making all things new, all things new heavens, the earth, the dominion we're supposed to have that we squander, it will all be restored. There's hope. And though we don't see yet everything subjected under the feet of Jesus, right, there's still dictators out there, evil people, and sin in our hearts. Don't worry. He is the God we worship, who we were created to worship, who cares deeply for us. And we worship Christ alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit co-equal, eternal in glory. That's who sends us into the world to bear his name as royal stewards. We are God's royal stewards, and somehow he's deemed us fit to bear his name. So, uh, I'd like to uh, end by reading Psalm 8 together in response to um, the Lord's word. Um, so, would everybody stand together, and we're going to read Psalm 8. And remember, I'll remind us, the reason why we read together at the end is because the Psalms, more than any other piece of Scripture, were meant to be corporately recited and internalized. And so, that's why we're doing this. Um, so, we're going to read Psalm 8, starting in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, 
You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your Lord and your name is majestic in all the earth. May we never forget it. And would you make us good stewards of your creation um, as we go out into the world and uh, worship you? Would we go out worshiping? Because that's what we were created to do. Thank you for the gospel, how much you love us, and how much you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.